This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. You've probably seen news reports this year about airline meltdowns, or maybe you've experienced one yourself. Major airlines canceling large fractions of their schedules, especially on big travel weekends, because they don't have enough staff to operate all the flights they've scheduled. It's been a real mess, especially because so many people want to fly. Air travel volumes are almost all the way back to pre-pandemic levels. And with fewer flights scheduled, that means really full planes and fewer options for rebooking customers when flights get canceled. Of course, good luck finding a human to talk to about those rebookings. It can now take hours to get someone on the phone at an airline, even if you're an elite frequent flyer. Meanwhile, airfares are through the roof and customers are putting up with higher prices and lower reliability because they really, really, really want to fly. So why is this happening and what can be done to fix it? I have an expert on the airline industry here today to talk with me about that. Brian Summers is editor-at-large at Skift, a travel industry publication. Hi, Brian. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. So what's the scope of these meltdowns? How much more unreliable has air travel gotten? It's gotten a lot more unreliable. Uh, People used to love to complain about airline travel. I always thought that they were overreacting because something bad happened to them. But right now, these issues are, are structural. The air traffic control system in in the United States is not in great shape, especially on the East Coast and in Florida. And then there are the things that you mentioned, uh, understaffing. There's a bit of a pilot shortage right now. And you have all these people that that, want to fly at exactly the same time. Uh, The best way to fix this would be to fly fewer flights. But you do that and prices go up and uh, passengers will be upset that way as well. So very often when we have these meltdowns, the the first thing that the airlines will point to is weather, that there was some weather event and it caused delays and it sort of dominoed through the schedule and caused this trouble. And my my understanding is that very often that is true, but the thing is that these other factors that we're talking about here have made airline systems more sensitive to weather, basically because things are more strained. When you have a weather event that causes delays that that interferes with an airline schedule, that basically has larger knock-on effects, leads to more cancellations than it would if the whole system were in a healthier place, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, uh, as a journalist, especially this summer, when I hear airlines cry about weather, I I call uh, BS. You know, uh, in the United States, it, it snows in the winter and you have thunderstorms at big hubs in the summer. You know, air, airlines, they, they plan ahead for these sorts of things. They put slack in the schedule. They have reserve crews. Uh, a thunderstorm in Dallas-Fort Worth shouldn't cripple your operation for days. The only way that we should see, you know, real problems in the summer is if, like there are multiple hurricanes one after another and airlines literally have to move planes away from Houston and then back into it. There's no slack in the system right now. And that's the problem. It's not weather itself. So why isn't there slack in the system? Because we had, back in 2020, one of the big pieces of the legislative response to COVID was a lot of subsidy money for airlines. And part of what that money was supposed to go for was so that they wouldn't do mass layoffs. So they would keep staff on the payroll so that when they had to start things back up, do exactly what we're seeing right now, when people really want to travel again, that the staff would be available and the airline would be able to operate as it used to. So did that that didn't happen. Where, where are all the people who are supposed to be working at the airlines so that there would be enough crews to manage the schedules that they've put out? Well, Josh, uh, you've heard of the great uh, resignation, right? It's happened in all different types of industries. It's wonderful when the government says, you guys can have a job during the worst economic crisis in the history of airlines. Uh, But people who had other things they wanted to do for a living, uh, they just got up and, and quit or they took early retirement. I mean, for about a year, year and a half, 
working for an airline was like the worst job that you could possibly have. Most people, they don't want to get paid to do absolutely nothing. So we saw a lot of people at airlines whose jobs uh, they were taken care of, but they just said, you know what, I want to go do something else. Uh, you also had pilots who stayed at airlines, uh, but they had to be retrained, right? So if you if they retire your airplane, uh, Delta re retired all its 777s. So those pilots need to get retrained. And then the pilots that were on the airplane, they need to get retrained to do something else. Uh, it's it's a real mess out there. So it's great that the government did what it did, uh, but that wasn't a panacea. And so to, it, it's not just that like people didn't enjoy sitting around and not working, right? A lot of these jobs at the at airlines, you have some sort of base pay, but you're relying on that there will be business so that you get overtime or various other things. Is that right? So that like even even if you kept your job, the fact that the airline wasn't operating as normal, I assume that means you wouldn't have made as much money as you would have if the airline had been had been running a fully normal operation. No, you probably wouldn't make as much money as you would otherwise. But, you, you know, you did see a lot of people literally they got to stay home and get a paycheck. So if you didn't mind that way of working, it was okay. You heard a lot of pilots and flight attendants say, I barely flew this month, it was great. And other people said, this is ridiculous. Josh, I mean, I think you're you're relatively plugged into these circles as a, as a frequent traveler. The number of Titanic memes I got from airline employees in 2020 was outrageous. <laughs> uh, I don't know, did you see the one about, uh, they were the band on the Titanic? Oh, God. Uh, and they were just, they just kept playing as nobody showed up at the airport. People got depressed, literally depressed. They, they, you know, people work in airlines because they love aviation and planes weren't flying. Planes were getting parked and they didn't want to do it anymore. So are those people coming back? On Delta's website, for example, they say that they have more than 75,000 employees. Back in 2019, they had 91,000 employees. So, and I, I assume that's that's typical across the industry, right? The headcounts are still significantly lower than they were pre-pandemic? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, some airlines have bulked up a little bit more than others. Uh, Delta's problem is not necessarily the number of employees they have. You might have heard uh, Ed Bastian, Delta CEO, give this quote on an earnings call that he probably shouldn't have uh, because his employees were listening about a juniority uh, benefit. So uh, Delta did its best to get rid of uh, many of its older, more expensive employees and replace them with relatively green employees. And that's probably part of the reason that Delta is having some trouble right now. But hey, juniority, if you're an investor, uh, maybe you like hearing that. <laughs> well, I mean, this is what Gary Leff is on about. He's a, 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 an airline blogger, and he basically says that Delta used to have a superior operation compared to these other airlines, but they lost a lot of management employees who actually knew a lot about how to run an airline how to do the operations aspects of how you move planes around and that sort of thing. And he attributes some of the meltdown to that, that it's not just a lack of physical resources and staffing. It's a lack of, of management know-how to operate through challenging situations with as little disruption as possible to the network. I think you're exactly right. Uh, Delta, during the pandemic, lost its chief operating officer, Gil West. Uh, he was a god in the industry. Nobody is exactly sure uh, how he did what he did. But, you know, Delta, a few years ago, uh, trademarked that phrase, the on-time machine. They hardly ever canceled flights. And, and that's another guy, you know, Gil West. I don't know what exactly what was in his head when he left Delta, but these guys had built this airline into probably the best operating airline in the world. And then one day it all falls to pieces of the pandemic. And Gil says, uh, you know what? I'm going to go to General Motors right now. I don't want to <laughs> do the airline industry anymore. And that, that, that happened to a lot of people. There's been a big 
brain drain at headquarters. So what are airlines doing about this right now? I assume th- there must be like a short-term and a long-term approach to this, right? Like in, in the short term, you have too many flights scheduled and you need to cut back the schedule. We're seeing some of that. I mean, it, United at Newark, for example, has taken a whole bunch of its scheduled flights off the boards for the summer because it, it's otherwise it's going to face these sorts of meltdowns at its Newark hub. So I assume in the short term, it's matching what you're promising to fly to what your actual capabilities are. And then in the, the medium to long term, it's about increasing those capabilities, hiring people, whether it's, you know, that you need to buy more planes or take them out of storage or train pilots on different kinds of aircraft. You need in, in in the medium to long term, you need to upgrade the operation so it can fly more. And in the meantime, you need to fly less. Is that is that approximately the approach? Yeah, I was going to tell you that the approach is more whining and waiting. <laughs> um, but you have it. You have it pretty much right. Uh, this summer, a few airlines have taken flights out of the schedule. Delta has been pretty aggressive about that. Uh, they took flights out of the schedule last month uh, for the summer. But I think uh, a lot of what the industry is doing is waiting until Labor Day. Uh, you you have this like basically two and a half month period where you have all this pent up demand. Uh, your kids are out of school and you want to fly right now and you just don't want to fly anytime. You want to fly like on a Thursday, Friday or Sunday and the system can't handle that. So Labor Day is when the kids are all back in school in this country. And usually uh, business travelers come back. Uh, but as you know, uh, nobody, including airlines, is sure whether business travelers are going to come back in September, at least in mass. Um, so the system should have some some time to breathe. And then I also talked about the blame game, the whining. Airlines are really trying to pin this on air traffic control as best as they can. To what extent is that true? You said the system, the air traffic control system is overstrained. How, how much of the blame lies with air traffic control? I think a lot of it is true. Uh, the FAA air traffic control system, especially on the East Coast in Florida and the Northeast, seems to be understaffed. And when planes go through uh, this Jacksonville, Florida uh, center uh, for approach, and then uh, any airport in the Northeast, uh, things seem to get slowed down a little bit. What does that mean in literal terms? It's basically like they, they, they can't process as many landings and takeoffs as they ought to be able to in a given period. So they put you in a holding pattern or they have a ground stop so they, planes can't take off for the airport because the, they're under capacity. What does it look like? Yeah, that, that, that's pretty much it. We've all been on these airplanes, right, where the pilot says, you know, we're all ready to go, uh, but, you know, JFK won't release us for 45 minutes, so we're just going to sit and wait here. That's an annoyance if you're on the plane, um, but it's much worse when you're three flights later that day and you have like a 9 p.m. departure out of Los Angeles. It's a beautiful day in L.A. You're going to Salt Lake City. It's beautiful there. And you have no idea why your airplane was delayed, you know, eight hours earlier because it couldn't get out of, or, or two or out of New York. I was really struck a few days ago. There was a terrible set of delays at the airport in Austin, and it was because they had to close the local control tower in Austin to do a deep cleaning related to COVID. And the airport announces this, and it's like, is it 2020? We think that it's a a matter of of fomites. I mean, I assume that there had been some COVID cases in the control tower, and they don't want to have to have a whole bunch of staff out simultaneously for COVID. How much is direct COVID effect still mattering in the system, whether through air traffic control or that airlines are having more employees out because of of waves of COVID? Is that that still a significant driver of, of, of these delays? Yeah, it is still a significant driver. Uh, I, I felt the same way you did when I saw the Austin news. Like, w- w- what are they doing? Um, but remember, you have unions involved there as well, and they want their people taken care I thought of. Ronald so- Reagan broke the air traffic controller union. We had a whole thing about that 40 years ago. Yeah, well, they're back now. <laughs> um, 
But look, uh, you know, airline employees are still getting sick. I was talking uh, to uh, an executive from a low cost carrier in the United States last week. And he said, you know, there are days where we look at the schedule for the next day and we say, we got it. We are not going to cancel or delay any flights. Our staffing is perfect. And then you wake up the next morning and, you know, six pilots call in sick. And this is a relatively small airline. And uh, it, it doesn't work the way you, you, you've intended it. So uh, people are still getting COVID and uh, they have to leave the operation for several days when that happens. You mentioned that that, that was a U.S. carrier. Are, are we seeing similar pictures around the globe? I mean, I, I've, we've, I saw the news reports in Europe about the Schiphol Airport in, in Amsterdam having all sorts of trouble that seemed to the locus of that seemed to be the airport rather than the airlines. They were having trouble with baggage handling and security, and they had incredibly long lines because of that. Is the situation in Europe better or, or worse than in the U.S. in terms of the, the air, air travel system functioning like it's supposed to? I would say that amazingly, it's probably worse in Europe. We have all these complaints in the United States, and they're all legitimate. But security tends to work pretty well in the United States. I mean, we see pockets of, of, of big lines. Uh, baggage claim is working okay. The airport itself is working okay. In Europe, uh, the airports themselves uh, seem to just be completely uh, melting down. And why is that? You know, that may be a labor question more than an airline question. Um, but I think somehow in the US, uh, we kept most of our airport employees. And in Europe, uh, there have been some there have been some complaints by airline CEOs that uh, people who worked at the airport Airport, they decided that they wanted to have a, another uh, a job. I mean, you know, this is somewhat related, uh, but, you know, those jobs on the ramp, you know, lugging bags and things like that, not a whole lot of fun. And if you can go out and do something else, um, maybe you do that instead. So you mentioned that it's sort of a, a sprint to Labor Day in terms of how much pain people can deal with until we get to that. And then I assume the idea is we have travel volumes in the U.S. sort of north of 90 percent of what they were pre-pandemic. You still have significantly depressed business travel, which I assume means that leisure travel is probably more than 100 percent of pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, it's about that. And so that means that through the winter, when the mix goes back more toward business travel, this will be less of an issue. And then hopefully by the time we get around to Memorial Day of next year, the airlines will have, have fixed their operations to a point where next summer will be less painful than this summer. I hope that next summer will be less painful than this summer. I'm not overly optimistic. Summer is always hard for U.S. airlines. They barely keep it together generally. Um, it's, it's, it's like Thanksgiving Day every day out there. <laughs> and so why don't they just cut the schedules back more to a point where this stuff becomes manageable again? I mean, I assume that you could reduce the flight schedule enough to the point where you would again have the, the level of slack in the system that you were used to. Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to somebody about this uh, last week, uh, Josh. And, uh, you know, some of this goes back to what we were talking about before. People were working at airline headquarters in April 2020, and they saw more cash going out the door every day than coming in. They didn't know if they'd have to file for bankruptcy. They didn't know if they would be there in the next week. And now you get to June 2022. You have the opposite problem. You put a flight on sale on your website and the thing like sells out within days. You've never seen demand so good. You run a business you're telling me that you're going to artificially sell less product when business is so good because you might have a problem in July. I mean, all these airline executives, they thought in good faith, they thought, I think we can do this. I think we can pull it off this summer. It turns out that they didn't. 
It didn't work out. Um, but it's hard to fault them for trying to sell every ticket that they can. That must be a, a balancing thing, right? Because people, not only do you have expenses associated with when you cancel people's flights and you have to find ways to reaccommodate them somewhere else, but people get really upset um, when you sold them a ticket for a flight that you don't operate, especially if they get clued into exactly what happened. And they know that it's not just, you know, bad luck and bad weather, that it's actually that the airlines knowingly overextended themselves because demand was so high, knowing that they were going to inconvenience a lot more people than they normally do and at higher prices than normal, where you have these these higher airfares, you'd think customers might might get really upset. That could be damaging to their brands. And I, I, I again, I go back especially to thinking about Delta, because Delta's business strategy for for over a decade has basically been they they achieve a higher you know fare per per mile than United and American, and they have a less generous uh, uh, rewards program in Sky Miles, which they achieve and they brag about this on earnings calls that they you know they have better brand loyalty than the other airlines because they provide a product that people are happier with, and in particular because they have a reputation for having this more reliable operation that is less likely to cancel your flight and less likely to arrive late. And so if you go through, I mean, last weekend, as, as we as we taped this at the, toward the end of June, Delta canceled 8% of its mainline flights on the weekend. The weather was not particularly bad that weekend. You would think that some people will be on those flights, they'll get canceled, and they'll say, why am I paying a fair premium to fly Delta when they're not providing the superior operation that had been at the core of their brand proposition. I would assume that people at Delta headquarters in Atlanta are worried about that. I would hope that they're terrified. I think you have it uh, exactly right. Before the pandemic, Delta was far and ahead above the pack, not just of U.S. airlines, but of global airlines. You know, People used to say, oh, I only fly non-U.S. carriers. 2019, that was ridiculous. Delta was the best in the world. Uh, they're not anymore. And the person who is enjoying this the most is United Airlines CEO, Scott Kirby. Um, <laughs> because United, uh, people may or may not be noticing this, but it is making a move up market. And it wants to be known as the most premium US carrier. And every time Delta makes a mistake, United is trying to capitalize on it. That's interesting because United had sort of the, the opposite strategy where they were building up these fortress hubs in, in the middle of the country and trying to have more routes on which they were the only nonstop operator and able to charge for that. Because basically, uh, I mean, I, I wrote a piece about actually mostly about American back in 2018 for, for New York Magazine about American trying to move up and, and build this better brand reputation. And it wasn't exactly working, whereas United had a strategy that was like, well, our customers are captive for other reasons. We don't need to convince them that we're the most premium carrier. So what, is it, what does it mean now? if they're trying to do that? Is that is that just about operations and trying to be more on time and fewer cancellations? Or is that something about, you know, product and service on the airplane? Because I always, I'm, employees on Delta are really friendly. I, I the, the least friendly airline, mainline airline employees that I encounter in the United States are on United. And I feel like that's a, that's a really hard cultural thing to change. Yeah, United's been changing the culture uh, over the last five years. And, and it's interesting what you say about uh, American and United, because the big difference there is the guy who was making that premium move at American was Scott Kirby when he was the president of American. He gets fired in 2016. He comes to United. At about that time, American moves down market. They won't admit it, but they've gone down market. And United goes to be a premium airline. 
you mentioned Delta being friendlier. I mean, of course they're friendlier because they have non-union flight attendants, uh, primarily based in the South. Uh, United's based in Chicago. They have union flight attendants who've been through two bankruptcies. They get a little bit salty sometimes. I don't know. I mean, Southwest is, all, I guess Southwest has never gone through a bankruptcy, but Southwest is a fully union operation. And I think there's a real culture of friendliness there. So I don't think it, I don't think it has to be just about whether you're union. Okay. But you know, the, 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 the United employees had been through a lot. Uh, with with the with the two bankruptcies uh, pretty much back back to back and giving up pay, um, but over the last five years, you know, United employees have been a lot happier generally coming to work, and they seem to be a bit nicer. Have you flown United recently, Josh? Yeah, I flew United in uh, in March most recently. Did you think they were any better? No. No, I, and 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 also the 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 airport operation is is just a huge. Even like I was checking in in business class at Newark, and it was a complete nightmare in the in the terminal there in a way that you know you wouldn't even see with coach check in at Delta. I was like the no, I've I because I you I I ski and basically if you're trying to fly to the Mountain West in the U.S., you're captive to United. United has a way better schedule to most ski destinations than than American or Delta, and so it's always sort of you know I mean obviously the first world problem here, but I'm like grumbling. Oh, I have to fly United again because I have to get the Bozeman or whatever. Um and. Yeah, no, I like I have I have not noticed that change. I mean, obviously, you know, this is a handful of flights. You're going to get a range of experiences on any airline. But no, I've I I have not personally noticed that that change. And I I do fly you know, actually I'm I made United Silver. Um, despite like thinking of myself as someone who does not fly United, uh, just because of certain schedule things that, that forced me to fly United. So I am technically an elite flyer there if we're counting silver. Well, I will give you that Newark is a mess. United knows that Newark is a mess. Uh, they generally blame their competition airlines for that. They say the competition in Newark is overscheduling the airport and it's not United's fault, uh, <laughs> but it's a really rough place to fly out of. Are the airlines learning anything new from this experience of having to rapidly shrink and then expand again in the pandemic that we should expect the operations to be different or maybe even better um, once we've gotten to a new stabilized condition post-pandemic? Or is, or is this really just a matter of getting back to the way things worked in as of 2019? Yeah, I don't think the airline industry will ever be exactly the way it was in 2019. Um, I just think airlines, I mean, how, how can I put this delicately? Because it's, it's not exactly true, but they don't quite know what they're doing. They, they've never been through this. They've never gone from parking airplanes. This is so much worse than 9-11, parking airplanes for years and trying to get the operation back running again. You know, I, I some, sometimes I think that the, the greatest thing for, for travelers, and we don't see it right now, is is more about uh, premium leisure, like travelers like you and me, Josh, who are, who are going skiing or going on vacation. Uh, airlines are respecting us again. You know, <laughs> in 2019, you had to work for like, you know, a private equity firm, a Hollywood studio, or like a major multinational law firm to get respect on an airplane. You had to spend $10,000 on your ticket. And now like airlines are just happy that you have a frequent flyer status. They're happy that you've bought up to premium economy or, or, or cheap business class. And so, uh, you know, travelers like me, like you, uh, we're getting, we're getting respect again. And, and I think that might uh, stay the case, especially as, as, as fewer of those big pocketed corporations are traveling. Yeah, so if the, I, I think one change we're likely to see is a is a permanent reduction in the quantity of business travel. There's certain meetings that businesses figured out during the pandemic did not actually have to be conducted in person. They're saving a ton of money and a ton of time by not traveling for them. And so one of the one of the things that I'd heard people 
positing maybe 18 months ago about the about what airlines would do would be that the the long haul aircraft that are flying from the US to Europe or Asia or whatever um that there would be permanently less demand for business class or at least less demand at a price where it makes sense for the airline to offer so much business class you know you can you can sell business class round trip tickets to Europe to high end leisure travelers for you know $3000 round trip or that sort of thing but when you're trying to price them at 8000 round trip that was really you know for captive business travelers who are not paying the bill for their own travel. And so if you have a, a permanent shift where there's more leisure and less business travel, um, then maybe you, you want more seats at a lower price on the airplane or, or lower, lower more seats that, that take up less space on the airplane. Are they, are they doing that? Are they ripping out business class seats from planes? Is there, is there a, a, a sense from the airlines that they're going to be wanting to fly a different mix because there's going to be more leisure travel? Well, first off, uh, I, I'm always wary of using the P word, uh, permanent, uh, because right. you never know like what cycles are going to happen and what's going to change. Uh, second, you know, generally speaking, airlines have not messed with the seating on board. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, it, it, you know, here's a fun acronym for you, but LOPA, do you know what a LOPA is? No, what is that? It's a layout of passenger accommodations. And so essentially, like when you change your seating capacity on the airplane, it's like renovating your house or something. You don't just go on and, you know, pluck, pluck out seats. It's like a big deal. And you have to get the airplane uh, certified and it has to go out of service. And so airlines are very, uh, they're very wary of changing their LOPA if they don't know what the future is going to bring. Uh, one, one interesting thing is, you know, Breeze Airways, it's David Nealman's new airline. Yeah, that's David Nealman founded JetBlue. Exactly. And so, you know, David uh, fashions himself as an innovator, and he's found some sort of a way on his Airbus A220s where he says he can basically rip out the seating configuration overnight. For, for people who don't know, an A220 is, it's a plane that's, it's smaller than a 737 and larger than a regional jet. Is that a fair description of it? Like a normal configuration of an A220 might have 100 seats? Or a little bit more. Right. Um, but uh, very fuel efficient, uh, brand new airplane. He, uh, David is very excited about it. And so that's, I assume, since this is an A220, we're talking about business, like a domestic type business class. These are not lay flat seats? That's right. Domestic business class. And so that's, so it's, you know, it's larger seats and smaller seats, but it's the, the planes, you know, if you have an, an, you know, an A330 flying to Europe, I assume those interior build outs are more complicated and more difficult to change, right? Because those business class seats are, you know, significantly sized machines. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure there's people listening to this saying like, that's ridiculous. Like they should be able to do it overnight in, <laughs> in two days. They just don't, they can't. One other trend that we saw back in 2021 as as air travel was really coming back was that airlines were coming up with weird routes to fly um, because it was you know, initially it was really just leisure coming back. And so you would you would get Minneapolis to Maine or other really routes that you would think would not have a ton of demand, but were really aimed at, you know, summer travelers going to this specific destination. Am I right? That stuff has all gone away because there's the, the airlines just don't have enough planes and they're trying to add stuff on normal routes rather than flying new, unusual things. Yeah. Domestically, a lot of that stuff ha has gone away and airlines are going what, with what has already worked. Um, but uh, long haul, it's a little bit different. You know, you no longer need all those flights to Frankfurt or Munich for the business customers. And you do see airlines playing around a little bit. Uh, United is doing a Washington, D.C. to Amman, Jordan. They're doing a Washington, D.C. to Accra. Uh, this is not a U.S. airline, but uh, Air Canada is going to be doing Vancouver to Bangkok. And nobody's ever thought that like North America to Bangkok could ever uh, make any money. Like you can do it on the airplane. 
but that's Air Canada saying like a lot of the, we, 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 we can barely fly to Tokyo. We can barely fly to Hong Kong, the places we used to fly. Let's try Bangkok. Let's see how it goes. And so that's two things, right? It's one, you, you have some of these countries in East Asia that still have significant entry requirement difficulties. And then also, I assume that those, you know, Tokyo and Hong Kong were, were business heavy destinations. A lot of people flying to Bangkok presumably are flying there for leisure reasons to go to some sort of resort, right? Right. It's hard to believe you could ever make as much money flying Vancouver to Bangkok, uh, but they're going to give it a shot. If you're booking travel this summer and you want to make sure that your flight is actually going to take off, what's your strategy around not getting caught up in these meltdowns and the cancellations that result from them? Well, Josh, I'm going to give you my real strategy. It's not a strategy that I ever give on television or to the general public because <laughs> people will laugh at me. But I, I okay. suspect that the podcast listeners here can can afford to do this, and it works. Uh, there are no change fees anymore in the United States. I always buy two tickets. I buy one hmm. ticket on one airline, one ticket on the other airline, spaced about two hours apart. And if my flight on Southwest is delayed, as it was a couple weeks ago out of Chicago, I uh, flew United instead. And, uh, you know, what's the worst thing that happens? You have a $150, $200 travel credit that you're going to use a month later. It works. Are a lot of people doing that? I mean, I I imagine if that became a widespread practice, that would really screw up the airlines planning, trying to because you you end up canceling one of those tickets at the last minute, which you are allowed to do under the fair rules. I'm not saying that you're you're breaking any sort of rule, but I assume that if if this is a widespread practice, that must make it hard for airlines to figure out how many tickets to sell, who's actually going to show up for a flight. Well, you mentioned uh, Gary Leff, you know, the, the, the blogger yeah. earlier. I mean, people like me and Gary Leff will do this. Uh, but one thing that I've learned in my decade plus covering airlines is that Americans are really, really cheap. So think about how many people are actually doing this. You know, it's, it's, it's relatively few of us super users. And as you say, uh, I follow the rules and, uh, you know. And so what if people don't want to buy multiple tickets? What are, you know, where do you get your highest odds of the schedule being flown as planned? Uh, you know, look, a lot of the stuff that you read is, is generally true about when to fly. Um, the uh, Department of Transportation put out its April travel report, looks back about two months, and it tells you what flights were on time and what flights weren't on time. And you can see that flights that leave between, say, six in the morning and nine in the morning are on time so much more often than flights later in the day. Uh, Delays, they just add up, and that's kind of what happens. Uh, I also recommend that people fly nonstop as best as they can, even if if it costs a little bit more money. And then, uh, you know, I tell this to people on the West Coast because I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, Our weather is a lot better on the West Coast. We have a lot fewer uh, air traffic control delays. And uh, if you can stay West, uh, you are a lot more likely to not be delayed. And then what should people do when delays and cancellations happen? Because I know a lot of people have this very frustrating experience where their flight is canceled and they get automatically rebooked on something that's completely inappropriate. It's, you know, it's two days later um, or the schedule doesn't make any sense or something like that. And then they want to change it, um, but they call in and it's, you know, two and a half hours to get somebody on the phone. I actually, I had an experience with JetBlue a few months ago where literally the wait time to get a callback was eight hours and my flight was in eight hours. 
So that was not going to work. I ended up actually, I couldn't get the schedule change that I wanted uh, over the internet, but I just was able, I canceled my JetBlue ticket and I bought a ticket, I think, on American. Um, and that was that was an approach that worked for me. But a lot of people, I think, they the, the cancellations happen and they feel like they can't get the assistance that they actually need from the airline. So what do you, what do, you do in that sort of situation? Josh, before we go any further, I just want to say, uh, you know that JetBlue is like the worst airline in the world right now? Um, I did not know that. So, What's so terrible so about JetBlue the, the, right the, now? These new numbers came out uh, today as, as we're speaking. In April, JetBlue canceled 9% of its flights, which is just an extraordinary number. It's usually like wow. 0.5%. And only 53% of its flights uh, were on time. And again, like I say this in all my podcasts, I'm West Coast based. I do not understand the East Coast love affair with JetBlue. They are like demonstrably not a reliable airline. It's a nice soft product. I flew Mint for the first time a few months ago, and it was a really lovely uh, business class experience. And their their coach has more leg room, and I think has good customer service. I don't, I'm, I'm, my revealed preference is I don't fly JetBlue a lot, um, but uh, when I when I do, I'm happy when I'm on the plane. Um, I you know obviously canceling nine percent of your flights in a month is, no. is is pathetic. To get back to your uh, to your question, uh, I would not recommend standing in line at airports. Uh, if you're an elite frequent flyer like I am, like you probably are, uh, it might be okay to call the 800 number. Um, but you know, if, if we're talking about a step forward that a bunch of airlines, not all airlines have made, but a bunch of them have made over the last five years, their mobile apps are a lot better and availability is dynamic. So it, it, you may be rebooked on a flight two days later. But if you refresh the app, oh, I don't know, a hundred times over three hours, as I've been known to do, (laughs) you will see one seat pop up and then it'll go one seat pop up and it'll go. And you can grab it yourself just as well as any agent can do on the phone. So whenever possible, just do it yourself. Do it on the app. Don't waste your time. Yeah, this is one thing I will say for United, which I generally don't have a lot of positive opinions about. Their their app is excellent, especially in these situations. I have like the I have had more ability to handle things for myself through the United app than I have found on 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 other airlines when when things go wrong. Um, Finally, what's the what's the situation right now with? loyalty is the 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 value that you get as a customer from keeping most of your business with one airline and achieving a fairly high tier in the airline's loyalty program is that paying off more or less these days i mean the, the flights are so filled so i certainly one thing that i'm seeing is it's paying off less in the terms of free upgrades um but customer service is more important than ever because of the unreliability or is that, you know, is it really especially important right now to be someone that the airline takes seriously? Because I mean, I know I'm for Delta where I'm platinum, so I'm the three tiers up there. It can still be quite a long time for me to get an agent on the phone at Delta. I don't know how long it takes to get an agent if you have no status with the airline whatsoever, because I've had experiences where I call there and, you know, it's going to be more than two hours to get a call back. Are we seeing, is there a real value in, in being a, a literal high value customer to the airline? Josh, I think you understand this better than anybody who's ever asked me questions. So, so thank you. Um, yeah, there is a lot of value. I would argue there's more value with being a loyal, frequent flyer now than ever before. Um, we all wanted our upgrades. That was kind of a stupid thing, right? Delta CEO Ed Bastian used to say, like, how ridiculous is it that we have the most valuable space on the plane and we're giving it to like 70% of our customers for free? So once you've gotten out of the idea <laughs> that you're going to get upgraded for free, just know that like when you are an elite frequent flyer and I'm a 1K on United and 
you know, they treat you like a human being. You know, they, they answer my calls within a few minutes, uh, generally. Uh, and there's like little, little nice things. I don't know what you're getting on Delta, but when I fly in United, I get a free beer and a free snack box, uh, which is like a, which is a nice, nice treat. And I think airlines are generally getting better at just like thanking travelers for flying them. Perhaps this airline has, has has me wrapped around their finger. They probably do. But the other day, I entered the United <laughs> Club, and they said, "Thank you, Brian, for being a one K." I, I, I was a cog in the machine three years ago. Nobody cared about. They me. always say that on Delta. They've done that okay. on Delta forever. But you know, m- maybe that's just about United <laughs> getting better. Um, but I just think you know, you, you, you're a leak. Yeah. I, I find that a little awkward, actually. I like, you know, it's, it's, it, it, I don't know. Cause it like, cause airline, airline status culture is ridiculous. Like the, like the amount of like uh, emotional investment that people put into their customer relationship with a company. I actually, I, th- this was with hotels, but I, when I wrote about uh, back in 2015, when Marriott announced it was buying Starwood, I, I interviewed a manager at a Starwood property because you had all these Starwood customers, the, the high, like the, you know, hundred nights a year. I have a personal ambassador from Starwood and all these garment rending quotes from them about how distressed they were. And no one at the company will talk to them about the merger. And my ambassador didn't tell me about the merger before it got announced. Literally one of them complained to me about that, even though like, you know, the, the SEC, you're not allowed to just go tell people that you're about to announce a merger. But anyway, I spoke with a, with a manager from a Starwood property and he was like, well, I'm excited about the merger because Marriott seems to set more reasonable expectations among its elite customers who do not think that the world belongs to them because they stay in hotels all the time. Uh, so, I mean, it's it, it always, I, I feel frankly a little bit self-conscious when someone says to me like, Josh, thank you for being a platinum medallion. It's like, it, it's like reminding me of the ridiculousness that I like put any emotional investment in this, even though I I did in fact do so. But it is a, a demonstration from them that you know they are taking it seriously, uh, even if we might be taking it too seriously. You're right. It is a ridiculous ecosystem, and I'm <laughs> embarrassed that I I take it so seriously. But it is nice to know that generally this summer I can feel reasonably comfortable about flying and knowing that the airline is going to take care of me. Why don't we leave that there? That's been really informative, and I and I hope that's useful for people as they uh, steal themselves to, to go to the airport this summer and hope that their flight actually takes off. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Josh. Brian Summers, again, is editor-at-large at Skift, a travel industry publication. We'll have links to his columns in the episode notes at joshbarrow.com. And while you're there, you can also leave a comment in the discussion thread for this episode. You can even make fun of us for uh, putting so much emotional investment in our relationships with the airlines and hotels that we stay in. Um, or, or you can agree with us about that, whatever. You can also sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. I very much encourage you to do that. It's at joshbarrow.com. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 